Well, good morning, everyone. Would you uh, pray with me as we get started? Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word that brings life to us. Lord, we thank you for the freedom, the opportunity that we have to gather together as the people of God every week to hear your word proclaimed. And we pray right now that you would open our hearts to hear you speak from us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, although as many of you know, I did not grow up in a Christian home, we nevertheless still did go to church occasionally. I think mostly this was for social reasons, for my parents. And so I have these uh, really vivid memories of sitting on this, or rather kneeling on this long red cushion right up at the front of church behind this ornate railing that would separate the people from the altar. And I would be kneeling there, and then the priest would come by. This is in the Church of England, not the Catholic Church, but they're very similar, the Church of England. And then then the priest would come by, and I would have my hands down, I would open my mouth, and the priest would carefully place this little perfectly round wafer in my mouth. I have no idea what these wafers are made of. It's certainly not bread. (laughs) It tastes more like polystyrene, those little packing nuggets, you know, that come in boxes, like someone just flattened those into circles, and that's how they're reusing them all. Um, but then, then we would wait, and the process would be repeated again. This time, they'd come down the aisle with this big silver chalice filled with whatever it was, grape juice or wine or something. And all I could think about is surely that pristine little white towel is insufficient to thoroughly sanitize this cup as it's going from mouth to mouth to mouth to mouth to mouth, working its way down to me. This was not a pleasant experience. So what did it all mean? I had no clue. This is just like, it was just what everyone else is doing here. So I guess this is what I do. I kneel and I receive. Now, Skip forward 20-ish years, and now I'm married, I'm a believer, I know Jesus. My wife and I are at this big mega church out in California, amazing services every week. But the church we were at had made the decision uh, not to serve communion on Sundays ever, and instead it was reserved for the Wednesday night services. And even then it was only periodically, maybe quarterly, is very rare. Essentially, the message was, this is totally optional. Uh, and needless to say, we didn't stay very long at that church. A confusion abounds when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Opinions about what it means, what happens, how to take it. They vary wildly depending on the denomination that you happen to be a part of or the theological traditions that have been a part of your family. And among modern evangelical churches, the Lord's Supper is often overlooked or passed over so quickly that it can end up feeling pointless or even unnecessary. And yet, when we turn to the Bible, when we turn to God's Word, we see that the Lord's Supper was a central feature of the early church and their worship. But what does it all mean? Well, I'm going to argue this morning that the Lord's Supper functions in three different directions. Three different directions. Just keep it simple. First, it's an opportunity for us to look back at what Jesus did on our behalf. Second, 
This meal is a chance to encounter Jesus spiritually in the present. And third, the Lord's Supper directs our vision towards the future, reminding us that our present suffering is light and momentary because Jesus' death has secured for us a future hope. This little meal of bread and wine points forward to the day when all these shadows and symbols will be cast off and we will feast with our Lord in person. In other words, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember and give thanks for all that Jesus has done in the past and to be renewed and strengthened as we press on in our long journey towards our heavenly home in the future. Now first, when we celebrate communion, we remember all that God has done for us in the past. Now for those of you who remember worshiping with us when we were meeting at, uh, at uh, Fellowship Church of Carroll Stream, perhaps you remember up front they had a, a big wooden table. It looked a little bit like this isn't the actual table, but I, I think it was similar to this. There are churches all over the country, and it has... Jesus' words from Luke twenty-two nineteen, carved on the front, right? This do in remembrance of me. But what does it mean to remembrance, as it were, Jesus? Like, like, like what does that involve? What does that mean? Well, to truly grasp the extent and the importance of this meal, I think we actually have to go all the way back, not just to the Last Supper, but to the meal that they were celebrating when Jesus shared the Last Supper with the disciples, with the Passover meal. This was a meal that was instituted by God at the climactic moment, the climax of the battle between God and Pharaoh. It's not really a fair battle. We know God's going to win, but you know, they're nine rounds into this epic battle, right? Plague after plague after plague, and, and then God threatens one final horrifying plague at midnight, Every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. And yet still, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. And the people are kept from leaving. But before we can find out what's going to happen next, there's this huge interjection, right? God suddenly introduces something new, and it's a meal, a shared meal, a family meal, a meal that from this point forward is meant to mark the very beginning of their year and in a way also the very beginning of their new existence as the people of God. The people are to take a lamb and as we just heard, they're to kill it and then put some of the blood on, on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house and then they're there to, to eat this roasted lamb along with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. And God says that when he sees the blood, he will pass over the house, sparing the firstborn within. Now remember, none of this is really necessary from God's point of view, right? Like, he doesn't need them to do all of this in order to spare them. Right? He could send the final plague and rescue his people without any of this. But there's something significant that God wants them to see here. This meal is intended to do two things. First, it binds the people together as one, clearly delineated and separated from those who do not share this meal. It shapes their identity. It tells them, this is who you are. 
But secondly, it also provides then a means for the people to be protected from the wrath of God by virtue of the blood of this lamb. The meal was meant to unite them and also to protect them. Not just once, but as Moses says, throughout all the generations as a statute forever. In other words, not just as a way to remember what God had done a long, long time ago, but also in some way to unite those generations across time in a shared meal of remembrance. In celebrating Passover every year, each new generation would in some sense place themselves in the sandals of those generations who had passed before, recognizing their own captivity in that moment, their own need for rescue, and their own thankfulness and joy and celebration for God's gracious act of redemption in their lives. Now, we tend to reduce remembering to something that's purely cognitive and intellectual, like, oh yeah, I remember who my first grade uh, teacher was, or my kindergarten teacher was, or oh yeah, I remember uh, when we visited Disneyland when I was 10 years old, or something like that. But remembering in the Bible requires the people to take a far more active role in the process, engaging all of their senses, right? And in some sense, emotionally, spiritually, then participating again in that experience, even if they weren't there in person. It's perhaps a little bit like uh, maybe you've heard of these 9-11 memorial stair climbs. Have you heard of these? You know, every year to honor the 343 firefighters in New York who, who gave their lives, lost their lives uh, in the Twin Towers Every year, people will gather together and, and climb 110 stories, the equivalent of the height of the World Trade Center, to remember that sacrifice. That's an entirely different kind of remembering than simply looking at the calendar and being, oh, it's September 11th. Yeah, I remember that. They're, they're, they're embracing it. They're living it out. They're reenacting it in some way. That's an entirely different kind of remembering. That's why it's no accident that the Last Supper took place during a celebration of Passover. Now, we're not trapped in literal slavery in Egypt, but a much deeper, more significant slavery to sin. We can't escape on our own, but we need God to intervene to rescue us. And as the broken body and shed blood of the Lamb spared the Israelites from death, so does the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, our Passover Lamb, spare all believers from now on from death. And so as we take the bread and as we drink from the cup, we remember what Christ did for us on the cross. His body broken, His blood shed And as the Passover meal united the Israelites and gave them a shared identity as God's blood-bought people, so too does the Lord's Supper unite all believers and give us a shared identity as God's blood-bought people. And so now we can begin to see some of the different facets of what it means to do this in remembrance of me. First, we 
We need regular reminders of the gospel because we do simply forget. Lingering, indwelling sin, it clouds our minds, right? We get caught up with all kinds of distractions and random thoughts and misunderstandings of who God is and and who we are. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for God to clear the deck, for us to be reminded again of the centrality of the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died a real death for us. And the forgiveness that comes as a result of that death continues to set us free from ongoing sin and doubt and struggle and despair. The Lord's Supper reminds us of God's ongoing, gracious, powerful provision for all those who have put their trust and faith in Him down through all generations. Not just at one moment at a time, long ago in the past, but even here, now, in our own little congregation. But second, more than just an intellectual reminder, we need the physical, tangible reminder. Truth we can touch, is how Pastor Tim Chester puts it. We're generally speaking pretty bad at at, at internalizing concepts and ideas. They just... They don't always stick very well. And so God in his grace has given us elements that we, can, that we can taste and see and feel and touch. Bread and, and the cup to help us grab hold of these deep truths. The gospel is therefore presented to us not just in words but also represented in a way that we can taste, that we can chew, that we can swallow and consume And so when you hold the bread in your hand, even if it's just this tiny little piece of a cracker like we have here, and you feel it press against the skin of your fingers and the crumbs, they fall on your lap, and then you crunch it in your mouth, and it helps you to internalize the powerful way, the the reality of Christ's body broken, beaten for you for me. And in the same way as you look at the, the deep, dark red of the cup, and then, and then you taste that burst of sweetness in your mouth with that lingering sour note at the end, it, it's, a, it's a, a powerful reminder, physically, tangibly, of the reality of Christ's literal bodily blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, for my sins. And third, and finally, we do this as a reminder of our unity in Christ. The Passover meal was shared in community as a way to remind the people of their shared identity. The Last Supper, likewise, was shared in community. The bread and the wine emphasizing their newfound identity as followers of Jesus. Now, I know that decades of tradition have taught us to consider the Lord's Supper as something that is entirely private and personal, right? Just a, a moment, head down, eyes closed between me and God. And, and that can very well be part of this experience. But every time I study this material, I'm struck by the corporate nature of this event, 
we should, I think, really be celebrating this meal with our heads up, with our eyes open, keenly aware of the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around us. The bread is meant to be a shared loaf. The cup is meant to be a shared cup because this moment is meant to bring us together as one people, one body in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know there are all kinds of logistical and sanitary uh, issues involved with recreating that, but even with our little cups, as we do it every week, we should approach the table as a chance to remember, as Paul says in Romans 12, 5, that we, though many, are one body in Christ. So first, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back and we remember all that God has done for us in the past. But second, we also experience God's blessing in the present, here, now, today. This brings us to a question, of course, Christians have wrestled with for centuries. What exactly does happen? What happens in the moment when I take the bread and drink from the cup? On the one hand, all we do is hand out some plastic cups with crackers and grape juice in them. Does any part of that really do something? And if so, how? Or is the whole thing merely symbolic? Well, let's look at the text in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And the context here is the general state of disorder and chaos in the Corinthian church. Division, dissension, sin, idolatry, theological confusion, they... They've got it all going on. And so we read in chapter 11 that although the Corinthians were celebrating the meal, they were essentially messing the whole thing up. Good? You're celebrating this meal together. Bad? You're doing it all wrong. The meal that was meant to bring unity was instead causing division. So as we already heard, read this morning, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The meal that was intended to bring them together as the body of Christ was instead driving them apart. Some people are getting drunk. Others are gorging. No one's waiting Uh, for for each other. It's chaos. So he then reminds them in the familiar words that we hear every week of Jesus' words from the Last Supper. He reminds them that the food is more than something to merely fill their bellies. It has real spiritual significance. The bread representing Christ's body given for them, the the cup representing the new covenant Christ secured with his own blood, a costly sacrifice made for their benefit. And as such, their eating and drinking were meant to point, point them to Christ and to proclaim his work. The meal was intended to, in some sense, symbolize the gospel because symbols are powerful. Many of you are married in here. Imagine for a moment taking off your wedding ring and just kind of tossing it on the ground. 
Or perhaps you go to the bathroom to wash your hands and you lose it down the drain. Right? I mean, these are just, it's horrifying thoughts if you've been married for any length of time. And yet this ring is just a symbol. It's just a piece of metal or, or whatever. It doesn't make you married or not married. It's just something symbolic that we wear on our hands. There's no power in this ring. Nevertheless, what the ring represents holds immense power. And in some sense, the same is true with the bread and the cup. On the one hand, they are just bread and wine or grape juice. But on the other hand, clearly they are so much more. So much so that Paul goes on to give the very direst of warnings for the nonchalant manner the Corinthians were treating the entire process. And he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I believe the unworthy manner refers here not so much to the sort of private sin of the individual, but to the chaos and the disunity in the church as a whole. Basically, everything we've read in verses 17 through 22, people getting drunk on wine, rushing ahead without waiting for everyone to be gathered together, gorging themselves, and so on. So when Paul says then, let a person examine himself, this is not so much about introspective prayer and reflection, although, of course, that's always good. But he's talking about the chaotic and the inappropriate way in which the meal is being shared. Now, obviously, if you are not a believer, and we say this every week, you should not be participating in the Lord's Supper. Moreover, if you are living in stubborn, ongoing, unrepentant sin, you should not take the elements. If you are under church discipline, you should not partake in this meal. But the Lord's Supper is not meant as a reward for the spiritual elite only. It's spiritual nourishment for weak and weary sinners. So it's less of a medal for winning a race and, and more like the water that they hand out to the exhausted runners halfway through a marathon. Because we are woefully inconsistent in our private devotion to God. right? Painfully weak in our faith. We are consistently tempted and led astray by sins that we should have conquered and dealt with years ago. Compared to the perfections of Christ himself, we're like train wreck dumpster fires. I mean, we're a mess. In one sense, none of us could ever be truly worthy of sharing this meal. But that's exactly the point. It's why we come to the table in this moment. Because we need this. I need this. Now clearly Jesus is with us spiritually at all times. He made us made that very, very clear. 
But there is nevertheless something special that happens when we share the Lord's table together. There is real spiritual nourishment that takes place. It's why Paul gets so upset with the Corinthians for the unworthy manner in which they're approaching this meal. Because it's more than just a memorial. It's an opportunity for them to experience in you true refreshment from Christ, their Savior. Now, the bread, it is just bread. It remains bread. The cup or the wine, the grape juice, whatever, it it remains just wine or grape juice. But Jesus works through these elements to care for our souls in a special manner. Jesus always remains the focus. He is our salvation, not the Lord's Supper. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we receive new spiritual strength for the journey ahead. So what happens when we share this meal together? We receive real spiritual nourishment from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not merely pondering and reflecting on this sacrifice but in some way receiving sustenance from him. As the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 says, when we take the Lord's Supper, we by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. In other words, something does actually happen in that moment as we cling to Jesus through faith. Now, as for the mechanics of how that occurs, Charlie uh, Wingard, he's a professor at a Reformed Theological Seminary, he points out Calvin's answer to this question. This is uh, Calvin's answer. Now, if anyone should ask me how this takes place, in other words, how we receive this sustenance, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. He declares, meaning Jesus, he declares his flesh the food of my soul, and his blood is drink. I offer my soul to him to be fed with such food. So I can't give you the precise mechanics of how this works, but I do know that it means coming to the table with with, with our hearts open to receive nourishment from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. It means coming to the table with, with a deep and true awareness of your real neediness and your dependence on Christ, preparing your heart ahead of time to set aside any sense of self-sufficiency in order to come openly, honestly, without hesitation, bringing your brokenness, your weakness, your struggles to Christ so that he can then care for your soul. So first, we look back in remembrance of what Christ has done. Second, we experience afresh the spiritual blessing and nourishment of his presence with us now in the present. But then third, And finally, at the Lord's table, we also look ahead to the future with hope. Going back to Matthew's account of the Last Supper in Matthew 26, if you read verse 29, he says, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, although we usually place all of our time, energy, and focus on remembering the past and celebrating the present, there is also this very strong focus in every account of the Lord's Supper, directing our gaze towards the future. Right? This meal was a serious moment of reflection. Jesus was increasingly blunt. If you read the gospel accounts, the closer he gets to his crucifixion and death, the more blunt and open he gets about what's about to happen. And the disciples, they're on edge. John, in particular, captures this deep sense of anxiety and foreboding and uncertainty. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How will this work? What of all your great promises? And it's in the institution of the Lord's Supper that we find some hint of the answers to these questions. Jesus will indeed depart. And although he will be raised again after three days, everything will be different. In fact, he won't share the Passover wine with them again until a day long distant in the future, the day of his glorious return in power and judgment. But this promise is not given to further depress the disciples, but rather to bring them encouragement and hope and strength to face this uncertain future without him. You know, we just got back from a family vacation, visiting with family on the East Coast. And it was difficult for our kids and their cousins to all say goodbye to each other. And so on the last night, we all stayed up late reminiscing over all the fun experiences we had had together. But as the kids faced into the reality that the vacation was over and they would soon be returning to their normal lives again, they began plotting and planning, well, next year we're going to do this again, and let's book this same place, and let's come back, and these are all the fun things that were going to happen. Their hope in the future together gave them just some little sense of peace in the moment, that they could actually let go and say goodbye. Somehow a hope that they could make it through this next school year apart. Now, we didn't make any promises about what would happen next. Right? I have no idea what's going to happen over the next 12 months. But Jesus, he makes an absolutely concrete promise that one day he will return. And in that day, the disciples, and by extension, all believers, you and me, will enjoy glorious communion with him, celebrating together with God in the Father's kingdom. This is Paul's point that he makes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, words that we often skip over as we present the Lord's Supper to you on Sundays, to our detriment. And Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you look ahead to the future return of Christ when he will punish all evil, when he will do away with all sin, when he will usher in his kingdom. You look ahead past the pain and the suffering and the struggles of today to a future when all of that will fade away into the distance, eclipsed by the radiance 
of Christ when he appears in all his glory. When you take the bread and drink the cup, you hold in your hands physical assurance that those promises are real, that the hope is sure. Christ's return is not a wish or some mind game we play on ourselves to help us get through the day. It's a sure and certain promise that is guaranteed by his death and resurrection. We celebrate every week because we need to be reminded every week that yes, my sins have been forgiven. Yes, I can be washed clean. Yes, tomorrow can be different. Yes, his spirit is still with me. Yes, he has not forgotten me. Yes, God does indeed still love me and cherish me as his own. And yes, Christ is indeed coming back to reclaim his own restore his kingdom and make everything that was broken whole once again. All of this held in that tiny little plastic cup in your hands. The gospel has been preached, the cross has been proclaimed, and now the meal, however small it may seem, is a chance to grab hold of those great promises and take them as your own for you. Even as we look ahead to that great day in the future when we will share an even better meal with Christ in his kingdom. This is the meal promised to God's people in Isaiah chapter 25. Where we read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. On that day, we will experience a feast unlike any other, a a, a moment of abundant provision. Right, Death swallowed up forever, all suffering and tears and sorrow and death wiped away. A moment of joy, a moment of celebration and laughter and gladness. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb that, that John speaks of in Revelation 19, when all believers will finally be united together in a great celebration of our risen and glorified King. What a glorious day that will be. And so in conclusion, there's so much more we could talk about with the Lord's Supper. But to wrap all this up, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, this is a time for us to be reminded of the gospel that saves a time to receive spiritual nourishment from Christ through the Spirit, and a moment for us to look ahead to the promise of His great and glorious return one day in the future.
Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this gift that you have given us, this this shared meal that we get to participate in together as the body of Christ, the people of God, followers of Jesus, bound together by your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to drink deeply from this well that will never run dry. Nourish us, feed us spiritually this morning, and strengthen us to live in a way that pleases you for your glory. Amen.